0: hello and welcome to today's episode of the made for more podcast today I am joined by a very clever and wonderful uh, guest it is dr. Tom Nemi uh, Dr. Nemi is an award-winning clinical psychologist with a passion for preventing psychological problems while also enhancing resilience and well-being his university research produced the world's first, prevention program to prevent the onset of symptoms of depression and anxiety, while also reducing risk for eating disorders. Uh, Tom currently works with companies, schools, professional organizations to help them build psychological skills for mental health, wellbeing and resilience. More than 45,000 people have attended his workshops, training programs, uh, invited keynote addresses and conference presentations across Australia and around the world. His work has been featured wild wildly and also widely in the media, but most importantly, it gets outstanding feedback from participants. Tom is also the author of the book, Apples for the Mind, Creating Emotional Balance, Peak Performance and Lifelong Well-Being. I loved my chat today with Tom. Uh, I think that well-being is one of those things that is becoming more and more prevalent, more and more important. Uh, We're literally lifting the curtain that's a dance callback, lifting the curtain on what it means to be uh, mentally healthy and to have wellbeing in, in the workplace. And I think leaders need to uh, have that re- resilience have that, and be aware of the wellbeing for themselves, but also for their team as well. You know, what are some of the indicators? And I love uh, Tom's take on this is we want prevention rather than cure because it's easier uh, and it also means that people don't have to go through that spiral of being un. Uh, mentally unmentally fit unmentally healthy uh, the opposite to being uh, mentally fit and mentally healthy but today's chat uh, with Tom was sensational if you are sitting I would definitely grab a pen he's got so many great uh, pieces of advice all backed by data and his research which is wonderful if you're driving uh, listen in but I would definitely uh, save this one to go back to as well as always if you loved this episode please leave us a review on apple podcast or uh, tag us in socials if you're li- listening along uh, I love knowing where the podcast has gone in the world which is actually quite remarkable the amount of years it must be going to uh, worldwide all right let's dive on in today is a goodie welcome to the made for more podcast I'll be sharing my experiences along with some actionable advice to take your leadership to the next level. Introducing your host, it's me, Ali Nitschke. I'm a leadership and courageous conversations expert and a teller lover, a mother of four young boys, a wife, and a dance floor junkie. I'm here to give you the motivation you need to level up, lead yourself, lead your team, and your business. Let's go. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Made for More podcast. I am very excited to have one of Adelaide's own guests on the show today. I've got Dr. Tom Nemi with me, who is an award-winning clinical psychologist in the areas that we're going to be talking about today on resilience and well-being. Hello, Tom, how are you?
1: I'm great, Ali. It's good to see you.
0: It is good to see you as well. So I'm not sure if you remember, in fact, you may not, but we, or rather I, saw you uh, from stage at the WellFest festival here in Adelaide uh, late last year and I absolutely loved your talk on well-being for all of the corporate and business leaders that were there in the audience and couldn't wait to have you on the show. So thank you very much.
1: No, I remember that day. I was in at the town hall in Adelaide and um, we had a great group. So I do remember meeting you, Ali, and I'm thrilled that you asked me to be on the podcast. I was waiting for your call.
2: Oh,
0: were you really? Stop it, stop it, stop it. <laughs> anyway, now that we've got the flattery over and done with, I'll slip you that 20 later. Uh, tell me a little bit around where you've come from and where you're going.
1: Yes, well, uh, I'm Adelaide born and bred, but i um, I think, uh, well, I'm proud to have a bit of a global footprint in the sense that my organization, Healthy Minds, has come a very long way since it started as an idea um, Mm -hmm. over 10 years ago. But before that, um, I'm one of triplets. I've got two brothers the same age, which is a little bit strange, but it's normal for me. Um, We look very different and are very different. But um, So that was my part of my upbringing. Um, I didn't want to be a psychologist. I wanted to be a racing car driver, believe it or not. That Ah. didn't work out. Right. So I became a psychologist and then really ended up where I'm now, which is, a, is as a preventive psychologist. Although, um, as you might recall, Ali, that's not an official job title. It's just one I made up. But it, yeah. um, it absolutely fits the work that we do, because while I trained as a clinical psychologist, all of our work at Healthy Minds is about preventing things like anxiety, depression, eating disorders, and all those other things that occur in between.
0: I love that. And I think prevention uh, is definitely better than the cure. And I think bring it on. I think maybe you're just a little bit ahead of your time with your preventive um, psychologist, you should coin that because that will become a, no doubt become a, a role and a career for many young people. You should trademark it,
1: shouldn't I? (laughs) You should definitely
0: trademark it for sure. So, uh, yes, I love the work that you do. And I think um, what's really interesting is, as all things do, start from a little idea, from small things, little things grow. But you've been talking about well-being, you've been researching well-being, um, understanding it at that deep, much deeper level before well-being was a hashtag, before Mm -hmm. there was a global pandemic, before corporates were rolling out well-being as part of their strategy um, and corporate plans. So what made you get into, what What? What was the little idea? What sparked it when you went, you know what, I think wellbeing is important and I think preventative psychology is a thing that I should investigate.
1: Hmm. I It really developed quite naturally out of observations that I was making in therapy sessions with clients. So, um, you know, for many years, my work, probably fits the stereotype of a psychologist at work pretty well. I've got a big leather couch, um, you know, worked with people of all ages regarding their their problems, things they were struggling with, with their mental health. And it occurred to me that I've got um, probably a a pretty good toolkit that for many people really helps them. And so this was a toolkit of skills that I would teach in the course of therapy. And um, they seem to help many people. um, And uh, I found myself repeating these core ideas over and over with my clients. And eventually I started noticing that I'd be sitting with a client, sometimes they'd be in distress, and I'd have this intrusive thought kind of interrupt my stream of consciousness. Mm. And the thought was, what would have happened for this person if they already knew the skills that you're about to teach them? yes I'd would they it. have ended up here so it, I kind of you know I started it bugged me to be honest because yes. I, it was distracting me and I thought well yeah what about also what about all the people who don't end up on a therapist's couch yep but yet their their lives like for many of us are characterized at least periodically by emotional challenges psychological challenges Um, how would we get this knowledge out to them? And so it was more like how do we disseminate a toolkit that seems to be really useful and that, uh, you know, in a way psychological knowledge is underutilised. Yeah, It's not often part of our broader consciousness. And, in fact, a lot of people have very stereotyped thinking around mental health that is actually based on a lot of myths and often a lot of misinformation. Yeah. So it, it was all then, it just started to pick up steam in my own head initially, that maybe we could create psychological immunisation. And so you're right, this was before a COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's on our radar now, isn't it? We're dealing with a biological pathogen and we take a vaccine for that. Yeah. But what if we could teach people a skill set? So we have a non-drug immunisation. against these common psychological problems now part of what unfolded then when I made the decision to scale back my private practice and commit myself to a a four-year research program at Flinders University um, was that not only could we test it in a very scientific way which not many people have done and that's because it's hard work and it takes a yep. long time and you need lots of people and it, you know it, it doesn't often pay dividends at least not in the short term but we started to then see what are the ingredients to making someone very mentally healthy
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: so this was kind of the natural extension of that yeah and that's when and I'm sure your leaders uh, in your audience would be very interested that's where you start tapping into high performance
0: yes I love it. So with your research that you found over that four years, and I can imagine, you know, tracking the data points for that full disclosure. It used to work at the Bureau of Stats. So data does, you know, light me up a little bit, just a little cool, bit. Cool. Um, so when you're when you were looking at the, uh, at the people that you're working with, the people that you're doing your research on, did you start to naturally notice the correlation between mentally healthy people and practices and high performance, or was it the transition from once people came in to work with you that were seeking mental uh, mental health first aid or mental health assistance that, the, that you then noticed their high performance improved?
1: It was really both. It, it yeah. just became apparent to me that there's a continuum and mm-hmm. it's like, so the continuum of our psychological functioning goes from not functioning at all, all the way up to peak performance. Mm. But in our usual world, I think most people only see half of the continuum, and that's the half that is, am I ill or not? Am I depressed? Am I anxious? Or is someone I'm concerned about depressed or anxious? And if so, how do I get them back to the middle?
0: Yeah, so the middle is baseline?
1: The middle is baseline. And a large portion of the population are sitting in the middle. Yep. So the middle is not necessarily bad. It's not terrible, but it's certainly not functioning at our best. Mm. So if you contrast this with our um, the way we regard physical functioning, we yep. accept that we've got illness and injury at one end, and at the other end, we've got athletes. Yeah. But psychologically, from a mental health point of view, we don't often consider that there's that other half. Yes. It is about being very mentally healthy. So we have mm-hmm. a full range of functioning. But for, for most people in the world, I think we only see the, the left half, the, the lower half. Yeah. Um, and so this is a big part of how we've seen a shift from well-being, and let's just say in the corporate space, for example, has gone from being something that people thought, oh, gee, we should do something,
2: mm-hmm.
1: to now the people who are the real leaders in this field are mm-hmm. uh, saying, not only should we do something, but it is absolutely essential and it is a core part of our business practice because yeah. you cannot separate your human workforce's functioning from their well-being.
0: Yeah, isn't that an interesting phenomenon? That makes so much sense. But how for how many years do we used to separate work life and home life? And yeah. you know, you walk through the door or the threshold, and therefore you leave your junk at home or leave it at the door. Is that what they used to say? Leave your backpack yeah. at the door. Whereas we know these days that that can't happen, and even more so now when most people are working from. Either a shared space or or a space from home where we are yeah. literally immersed um, in in amongst it so you mentioned earlier around um, some of the myths surrounding mental health and I think it, it's wonderful now that there's a, a, a light shining on mental health and I think it's at the forefront of many organizations minds at the forefront of many leaders minds but I still think it's one of those things where people know they need to be aware of it but then the next step under that they're not as sure so what are some of the myths that you are aware of, that you come across as well around mental
1: health? Yeah, there's so many. Um, well, uh, one of the big myths is around stress. Mm-hmm. And the myth uh, that still pervades our society is that stress is inherently harmful or bad. Uh, interesting. And it's not. In fact, mm-hmm. mild to moderate stress is really good. Mm -hmm. Um, it's really good if it's short term and if it's Mm -hmm. punctuated by periods of rest Mm -hmm. Um, but you know uh, let me use my working week as an example on the weekend I really like to chill out if I can yeah I like to just go where my interests take me and spend time resting and just doing it switching off completely but in my working week I want a bit of stress and pressure. Yep. I want my calendar to have just the right amount of demands on me yep. that I'm not going to procrastinate, that I'm going to be alert, I'm going to be focused, and when I'm working, I'm efficient when I'm working. So this is um uh if you look into the theory of stress and performance, this is known as the Yerkes-Dodson law. And the Yerkes-Dodson law says that on most tasks that you do, you're going to perform better if you've got a moderate level of stress than if you've got no stress at all. So this completely debunks the assumption that we need a stress-free life. I love um, that. <laughs> now, we don't want chronic stress and we don't want it to be... We don't experience traumatic stress yeah. and we don't want to be consistently overstressed. Um, and that's that's the, the point at which our functioning is impaired by stress. Mm-hmm. So that's the inverted u we go from low performance really calm um to the middle ground where we're at our peak and then too much stress is no good either yeah um but that's a, that's a massive myth and in fact people's relationship to discomfort generally is a really interesting thing if people are i think a lot of leaders those who are willing to experience discomfort and let's mm. just think about that in terms of things like nervousness Mm -hmm. butterflies in the tummy Mm -hmm. uncertainty doubt um all those things that we know we're going to experience when we're at the threshold of doing something bold or new or different Mm -hmm. so your willingness to sit in that space unlocks your potential yes because if you are one of the breed of leaders who are of the view that i must always be calm and in control Um, I should focus on, you know, uh, use my strengths and just let the rest of it sit and go with what's familiar. Well, that, that might look like high performance, but it's going to be less than it could have been Mm. because we don't expand our repertoire as humans. If we're not challenged.
0: Yeah. You're singing, singing to the converted, um, one thing that I talk about with leaders is or what I'm most known for is around courageous conversations which of course make people feel very uncomfortable on varying degrees depending on how much practice they've had or the kind of conversations they need to have. And you've just hit the nail on the head here is the ones that are recognized that it needs to happen are the ones that end up performing really well as leaders are the most highly regarded are the ones that have highly uh, highly performing teams, highly engaged teams. The ones that go, actually, that makes me feel a little bit gross, I'm not interested, are the ones that continually have the problems. So isn't that interesting? I love it.
1: It creates a ceiling effect on their progress, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, But the other thing that, let's take it to the next level then. So when somebody is willing to step into that space and they recognize that they're going to get butterflies in their tummy, they're going to have an adrenal response, which is Mm -hmm. what that is. Um, they're going to feel a bit hot and sweaty and a bit uncomfortable. But if they can sit there and be willing to accept it, they can engage in that moment. Yeah. And if they do it again, mm. and if they do it again, yeah. then what tends to occur very reliably is what psychologists refer to as habituation. Love it. We get used to it.
2: Yeah.
1: So this is the principle um underlying one of the most effective psychological therapies which is exposure therapy when people have a phobia or a fear and the psychologist guides them to be willing to step into that discomfort sit with it sit with it don't get anxious and then run away because that's just going to reinforce your fear
2: yeah
1: but if you can sit with it long enough that your heart rate starts to go down the butterflies dissipate a little bit your body comes back into balance well, you've made a step forward. You've had an experience of becoming more comfortable in a situation that made you very uncomfortable. Yeah. And if you do that thing 10 times, on the 10th time, you're not going, oh, gee, I can't cope with this. How's this yep. going to go? You're going, this is getting boring. What's the next challenge?
0: Yeah, what's next? And I guess it's giving the body that chance to have new data input around how to respond in those experiences mm-hmm. as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. More diverse.
0: Oh, I love it. Love it, love it. What's some of the other myths that you come across around uh, mental health?
1: A lot of the myths relate to thinking in an overly simplistic way about mm-hmm. mental health. So, ah, for example, okay. one of the big myths is positive thinking. <laughs> yes. Um, so people assume we do a lot of teaching around these sorts of cognitive skills. You know, what what is healthy thinking? Well, the assumption is. Uh, and most people, when they think about it, probably ch- can tune into it. You know, what? what's the big myth? What do people assume that mm. I'm going to teach them? And people often say, oh, positive thinking. And I'm like, yeah, that's often what people assume. Yeah. But um, I don't know about you, Ali, I've never faced a real world problem and noticed that just thinking positive thoughts solves that problem.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it? Um, I'm someone who is over the top optimistic to the point where it drives people around me namely my husband absolutely nuts but when I have faced adversity I'm my immediate response isn't like sunshine rainbows what's next we have to deal with it and I remember years ago speaking to someone about when we have and when we face a, a significant problem or trauma in our life it's like being in a tunnel and we can't you can't exit left or right you have to get get through it and I think the way that we respond um well, you're the expert here, right? Um, the way that we respond to any of those kind of traumas is how do you deal with it in the immediate in the immediate term? But then at the other end, when the the crisis or the immediate impact is passed, it's no longer a threat. What's the recovery process from there? Is that where you're talking about um, optimism or I guess healthy thinking, positive thinking? Is going what What do you do after the immediate threat has passed?
1: Yeah, that's that's part of it, and I mean. There's a lot of research that says optimism is correlated with good mood and and good mental health. There's a lot of research that says that. Um, I still think we can do better than optimism. Oh, what's Um, after
0: optimal? I'm here for it. Overachievers. Like, yes, I'm ready for the next level.
1: (laughs) So in terms of that overall outlook, and and we'll get back to thinking in a moment, but I think optimalism is more helpful.
0: That's good.
1: So where optimism is expecting good things to happen, Okay, we can understand how that would be correlated with feeling good. I'm expecting good things to happen, I'm feeling good, that's my outlook, yeah. that's my expectancy. But optimism doesn't always support us in the way we hope when things don't go according to plan.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas optimalism is not um, expecting good things to happen. It's making the best of whatever does happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we're not wedded to the outcome. And optimalists are people who um, I always say they can have their Saturday night plans cancelled and they still have a good time. They're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're people who will make a culinary masterpiece from last night's leftovers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's inherently flexible and adaptable. And that's that's where my money is in terms of that kind of overall outlook.
2: Yeah.
1: I love it. But the positive thinking sort of myth is is quite... Uh, prevalent. And so I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about thinking and mm-hmm. talking to people about thinking and teaching them healthy thinking. And for me, healthy thinking fits three quite specific criteria. It should be balanced, which means it should look at more than one perspective. Yeah, And often four or five perspectives can be helpful. Um, right. So balanced is really good. And um, It should be helpful. So our thinking should help us. And often that means helping us to experience an emotion that's appropriate.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So positive thinking is always kind of hoping for good mood and good feelings, but it's not always helpful for us to experience good feelings. If you are in danger and you don't feel fear, what's that going to mean for you?
0: That's problematic, yeah.
1: Yeah? Yeah. So these things that we broadly... We have these broad brushstroke terms of negative emotions. Well, that implies that they're bad or that we want to get rid of them, but we don't want to get rid of them.
2: Mm. If we couldn't mm. feel
1: fear, you'd die.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: If you couldn't I think feel I my
0: children might be biological, biologically missing some of those
1: <laughs> <laughs> And you know, anger gets a bad rap, but if you could feel anger and you're walking along with your nana and someone grabs a handbag and you can't experience anger. Yeah. Are you gonna um, Are you gonna seek to protect what you love or to restore justice?
2: Mm.
1: So there, there are these helpful impulses that come from many of these emotions. Now we don't want to be stuck in anger. We don't want to be stuck in fear. Mm. But we don't. We don't want to not experience them when we need to. So helpful thinking helps us experience an emotion that's appropriate. And the third criterion um, is that it be realistic. Healthy thinking is. Accurate healthy thinking doesn't like consistently overestimate risk, which is catastrophizing and it makes us anxious and avoidant, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: but underestimating risk is a problem as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So realistic thinking is saying, you know, I'm actually thinking in a way that is accurate. It reflects reality. Yep. And So balanced, helpful, realistic thinking for me is what healthy thinking is.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. I've never thought about it in terms of healthy thinking and uh, just where you talked about the, the first criteria there was around balance, and you said four to five perspectives. I mean, often we hear the, the phrase, you know, think of it from their perspective. But if we're going four to five, where, which other perspectives do we need to be looking at?
1: What's happened in the past and what's most likely to happen ah, now.
0: Okay. Um,
1: what does your thinking brain say compared to your emotional brain if you're only looking at the facts? Yep. How would you advise a friend?
0: Mm, love that
1: so these kinds of prompts are ways we get other perspectives
0: yeah yeah so good so good so um you mentioned briefly there around um accurate thinking and as someone who has a thousand children that are continually trying to find new and creative ways to injure themselves um i am very good at catastrophizing like if we're doing risk assessment on a playground i'll be able to find 18 ways that you know we could possibly end up in the emergency and we'll try to mitigate that um that risk because i don't have time to go to emergency with the kids but uh you mentioned around um you know that makes us anxious is there a way that that this is the million multi-million dollar question can we start preventing or is there healthy thinking that we can start to implement at an individual level that is a preventative measure for anxiety and or depression
1: so balanced, helpful and realistic thinking by definition is an antidote to yep. anxious thinking and depressive thinking yeah, and, and, and chronically angry thinking. So if you look at mm. an- anxiety comes fundamentally from overestimating risk. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so and, and we can't mitigate all risk or we wouldn't leave the house, right? So yep. bad things do happen sometimes. Yep. Accidents mm. do happen. Um, but we, yeah, we all, all have to find that level of risk that we're um, comfortable with. And the good news about letting your kids have that little bit of space to take risks is that if they injure themselves on a playground and they realise, wow, I pushed it pretty far then, yeah, that's very inconvenient to spend six hours in a and
2: <laughs> yes. But what
1: about the learning experience your child so mm. and and the the thing here that is is quite like we've got to think there's short-term emotions in kids and we're often driven by that i want them to feel comfortable happy calm whatever
2: yeah
1: but there's long-term learning mm. and i often we go for short-term emotions at the expense of what's more helpful for someone to learn in the long term yeah and so I always think if my son, I and I, I'm sometimes at odds with my wife over this because my son's five and I'll let him take a few more risks than she will.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And my rationale is, um, yeah, he could hurt himself, and I don't want him to hurt himself. But in this relatively controlled environment, he's going to learn something about his limits. Yeah, I'd rather he learn that at five, seven, ten than at seventeen and a half in a car.
0: Yes, excellent, excellent point you make. Now mm. I have to. <laughs> reevaluate my playground assessment Be are like mm. Mm. also clear the calendar um so what are you what are you noticing now has been a trend for within the corporate p- corporate space with the leaders that you're working with what are some of the insights that you can share around high performance that have been absolute game changers in terms of healthy thinking or well-being for mm-hmm. that cohort where we want to you know lift and elevate performance of leaders and teams and organizations
1: One of the biggest insights that a lot of leaders connect with but perhaps haven't thought of before, and we now routinely say this to all of our Healthy Minds clients, is if you accept that well-being and work performance go hand in hand, then why would you do a performance review with your staff without also doing a well-being review? Mm -hmm. I love that. We foresee that ultimately well-being reviews will become a routine part of management practice now it might not be the way you think of it is going to be because it's not really your manager reviewing your well-being it's actually the way we teach it is they're facilitating you doing a review of your own well-being yeah
2: right
1: so there's and we do this in my company so we're, we're a small team we work really well together we know each other pretty well and but So the first thing on our quarterly business meetings is the wellbeing review.
2: Yeah.
1: And we will, um, someone will stand up and draw the wellbeing wheel on the whiteboard. Mm-hmm. And we review those six wellbeing factors from the wellbeing wheel. And we give literally give ourselves a rating out of 10. Mm-hmm. We say, okay, this is where I'm at for this. This is where I'm at for that. Yeah. And here's my plan. And we don't expect that we're going to be 10 out of 10. I don't think that's realistic, but I always aim to be a seven out of 10. as as a minimum, if I can. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. if I can be a 7 out of 10 around the whole wheel, that's a really good foundation for for Mm -hmm. my mental health. I I sort of use the term well-being as like a holistic view of what mental health is. Because mental health isn't just your mind, right? It's also to do with your sleep, your body, your exercise, your relationships, your values, all those things. And so um, I think well-being reviews is a game changer. And Mm -hmm. a lot of leaders and, you know, some of our um, larger corporates, some of their... Um, most strident leaders are now saying, well, yeah, we're going to incorporate this in what we do.
2: Yeah,
1: And it means that if there's an issue, they know about it and they can support their staff sooner. It prevents the things that the bean counters always look at, like absenteeism and productivity and output and um, staff turnover. It has a direct link to that. Um, so wellbeing reviews has been a big one.
0: Yeah, I love that. So just for anyone who's wondering about the uh, well-being will, they can download a copy of that from the website. So I'll put the links in the show notes as well. Uh, But are you able to cover off, you mentioned there's the six areas. Are you able to cover off on those six? Uh, We'll just do the highlight reel.
1: Sure. So in no particular order, primary relationships. Mm -hmm. So any relationship that's significant and that includes work relationships. Yep. If they're encouraging and healthy and supportive, it's good for your well being. And if they're not, it detracts from it.
2: Mm,
1: and love it. Connectedness in the workplace, for example, your sense of belonging and being understood, that's reflected in your primary relationship score. Um, the next segment is about biological needs and bodily health. Mm-hmm. And this is another one of those big myths that your physical health is separate to your mental health. And it's actually not,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because if you don't get enough sleep and you're dehydrated and you're hungry and mm-hmm. you're in pain, you're not going to function very well psychologically. Yep. So diet, hydration, sleep, all of that kind of stuff is part of the second factor. Mm-hmm. The third one is exercise,
2: yep.
1: which reliably releases endorphins and make you feel better. It's nature's antidepressant. Mm-hmm. Um, The fourth segment is psychological skills, which is what our work is really based around. That's our expertise, the psychological skills. So the healthy thinking stuff Mm -hmm. um, and a bunch of other skills that come under that. Um, And then we have two more segments that often the ones people are a little bit surprised about. So one we call the balance segment. And the balance segment is about having fun for fun's sake,
2: Mm -hmm. having
1: interests outside of work, having a social life. And you'd be surprised at how much scientific evidence there is behind this. Mm -hmm. Really important. And then finally, it's what I call the big picture segment, which is about the big picture of your life. Why am I here? What's my purpose? How do I derive meaning from what I do day to day? And um, each of these has good scientific evidence behind it. That's why we included it. And, you know, having a sense of purpose means you're likely to live longer than someone who doesn't.
0: Yep. So good. So it's so not think,
1: insignificant. <laughs> no.
0: When I saw you speak and you, um, you had this up on a slide and you said fun for fun's sake, and I'm a big seeker of joy. One of our, our guiding principles at Made for More is joy. And I loved that joy and fun normally fall in uh, into a similar bucket. Uh, so tell me a little bit more about, Around fun for fun's sake, because I think as adults, what I notice is we don't want to have too much fun. Like it's a little like you don't want to you don't want to have too much fun or be too funny. But what what does the data say? What does the research tell us about fun for fun's sake?
1: It's just really important and healthy. Okay. And isn't this isn't interesting that that's like the first thing that we relegate? Yes. When we're stressed or we've got grown up stuff to do, we think oh the fun goes to the like that, mm-hmm. that can't be as important. Well, the, you know, the metaphorical prescription that I give everyone is fun's essential yeah. because it it activates us quite literally. It lights up pleasure centres in the brain. It, it, it gives us all these healthy biochemical and hormonal responses that help even out our mood, that help moderate those times of stress and effort and pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of being mentally healthy. Yeah. So... And it's so funny because some people have gone so far down the path of it's just about positive emotions that they don't learn the skills to manage the negative emotions. But then some people just think of psychology as dealing with the negative emotions but not generating the positive emotions. The answer Mm -hmm. is we need both.
2: Yeah.
1: And and that's where the fun comes into it. So, um, you know, when people are depressed, one of the strategies psychologists have is sometimes referred to as behavioural activation. (laughs) It's literally getting them to have experiences that cause them to feel good, and Mm -hmm. just the the natural reinforcement of that, it it rewards taking action, and it gets people on this virtuous cycle of being active, being engaged in the world, and feeling good because they are,
2: Yeah,
1: which is the opposite of depression. Depression is defined by inactivity and withdrawal, and there's an inertia with that. I I just feel stuck. So, um, yeah, so many of these things, if we look at both sides of the coin... We can understand the pathology, but we can also understand the healthy half.
2: Right. So, what's
0: your go-to when you need a, a quick dose of fun, for fun's sake? What What do you do?
1: It's usually social. It's usually yep. arranging to see uh, my my best friend, or um, you know, just I've got a small but close-knit circle of friends, and um, it's the kind of friendship group where you can. Um, be a bit of a knob and they love you anyway. And they'll laugh They're at the bad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And so, um, uh, yeah, that's, that's where I get the most, the biggest boost out of. And isn't it interesting? You can be feeling exhausted after a working week. Yeah. And if you were given a work task, I, I just couldn't, I don't have the energy, I couldn't possibly do it. So you don't feel like you have energy to in, invest in a social interaction. You might go to bed later. Mm. Um, depending on how much fun you have, you might be feeling a bit worse for wear the next day. Mm-hmm. And yet it energises you. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't so that interesting? There's something to that, isn't there?
0: Mm. Amazing. You've given me a lot to think about. And um, I really love this this healthy thinking around the antidote for anxiety and depression. And I think if even if um, the listeners take nothing away, which they won't, of course, there'd be thousands of things, if, if they can take that away, I think that would be, an amazing step in the right direction for healthy thinking well-being healthy minds what would be you work with leaders you've got a team what would be your top five tips for leaders what's your go to
1: well if i've got to limit it to five know, I'm going hard, to go, isn't it i think i think one of them is is kind of what we touched on before be willing to experience discomfort yep this unlocks potential it gives you more options it broadens your horizon so you know this pays off when we're overcoming our fears, but it also pays off when we're striving for a bigger goal. If you can sit in that uncomfortable space, um, you're going to go further. Um, so number four in my top five would be to realise that perfectionism is an ironic process.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're striving
1: to be perfect and, you're, you know, your striving gets really intense and rigid and focused. It's probably going to get in the way of you achieving. Right. So that that'd be my number four. Um, number three is that I think one trusting and trusted advisor is worth 10 micromanagers. Ooh, good one. So you know, we leaders can inadvertently foster dependence mm. by being over involved in their team. Mm-hmm. And so it's a bit like the parent letting go a little bit. We mm-hmm. want to control all the contingencies and make sure we secure a good outcome as much as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. But in the short term, we 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 don't want then that to be a reliance on us. Yeah. We want people to spread their wings, find their limits, uncover their potential. Um, and so I think that being a, a trusting advisor, as well as a trusted advisor, you're Giving this implicit message that you will you will get there, you will find your way, and I'm I'm here if you need me, mm-hmm. but let yourself go and make some of your own decisions. And um, I just think that's a great way to help foster new leaders under your leadership.
0: Yeah, one of the best leaders I've ever had, and this was early in my career. He had a saying: "He's come to me with your solutions, not with your problems." Yeah. And it was. The best lesson I've ever learned, I think. It's yeah. Amazing. It mm-hmm. invites
1: you to take that next step and think, mm. you know, doesn't it? Yep. Um, think about solutions. It's it's great. Um, and my number two would be, and this has really come up a lot in the last couple of years with a lot of like, we, we've worked with a bunch of different organizations, a whole range of leaders um, across the globe. And we've seen some consistent themes. And of course, There have been some great consistencies in what people the world over have been experiencing. But one of the key observations I made, and I've had many conversations with leaders about this, is that when they're struggling a little bit, just having a bad day, it's tough, it's stressful, whatever, if they're willing to show their human side to their team, Mm. it gives everyone else permission to acknowledge feeling what they're already feeling. Yeah. And, and it opens the door to help seeking if someone wants to reach out to a leader. And so, some of the more junior leaders, I think, and maybe I'm, hmm, I don't want to tie everyone with this brush, but I think some of the more junior leaders were still very invested in impression management.
0: Oh, impression management—that's good.
1: They wanted—they wanted to play the role of the leader. Mm-hmm which to them meant always communicating that I'm in control and brushing over the problems. It's, I've got it in hand, you know, I'm steering the ship. Yep. Whereas I've found um, on balance I've seen more benefit to those leaders who said, actually, this is pretty shit. And <laughs> it's I've a hot struggled- mess. I've got no yeah. idea what's going on. I've, yeah. I've, I've struggled with this. Um, this is really tough. Yep. Or I've needed to reach out for help for something. And those who did that, it was like, this relief, this visceral kind yep. of exhale from their team saying, yeah, well, it is tough, isn't it? And we're struggling too. And all of a sudden it opened up these conversations. Um, and my number one tip is to always remember that wellbeing isn't separate to your core business. It's inherent to it. It's intrinsic in Ooh. the functioning of your business.
0: That is so good. I love it. And I like that you did the countdown as well. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting yeah. today about uh, well-being. I uh, have got some work to do with my team as well around, I think, you know, having a look at that well-being will as part of the assessment is really important to incorporate both sides of both the, the physical and mental, and also then what's happening on the balance sheet too is uh, is amazing. So if people would like to find out more about you, I think you mentioned you've got a great um, download for uh, some of our corporate leaders, where can they find that and what what's your what's the the handles or where do they tag you? All of those things. So,
1: um, yeah, I think uh, people can visit our website at healthymindsprogram.com. And I think it's currently under the news section of the website. We need to rejig the website. Um, but you'll find something called the ultimate corporate wellbeing playbook, mm-hmm. which is something my business partner Nick Lee and I put together because we wanted to support leaders in thinking about the big picture and the long-term, not, yeah. not looking at just which fire do I need to put out or which yeah. workshop should I run, but what does a preventive mental health strategy look like? Mm-hmm. So that's free to download from our website at healthymindsprogram.com. You can contact mm-hmm. me directly, Tom, at healthymindsprogram.com. That's an easy one to remember. Um, my personal website is com, and that's where you'll find a link to my book. So if people... Um, really you know i've got a bit of a taste for some of these psychological concepts we've been talking about and they want the you know the hamburger with the lot then they can um there's a link there on my website to purchase my book apples for the mind and apples for the mind has like really everything that we teach in our workshops pretty much is in the book
0: is that a play on an apple a day keeps the doctor away it is love it very clever. Thank you so much, Tom. I'll pop all of the links into the show notes. And uh, if you loved what you heard today, and I'm sure that you did, be sure to reach out uh, to Tom and tag this uh, on socials as well as you're listening or watching. Have an amazing time. Thanks again, Tom.
1: Thanks, Ali. Bye for now.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode on the Made For More podcast, please make sure you subscribe to receive future episodes. And of course, five-star reviews are always welcome on the Apple podcast. If you'd like a copy of the show notes or any of the links mentioned today, check out madeformore.com au forward slash podcast, and of course, if we aren't connected already, you can find me in all the usual places: Ali Nitschke on LinkedIn, Ali dot Made for More on Facebook and Instagram. I hope you have an awesome week, and I'll catch you again soon. Bye bye.